within just two decades, probably earlier, but within just no more than two decades of the resurrection of our Lord, the Apostle Paul, who was our obviously most noted theologian and influential guy in the early Christian church, and, and still to this day, probably outside of Jesus, would be the second guy in terms of influence on the church. Less than 20 years after the Lord's passion, in several of Paul's letters, he recognized and stated very clearly a reality. A reality within the early Christian church that already, just those few years after the resurrection, already there were distinct groups within the Christian church. Denominations, proto-denominations, if you will. I don't have time to go into the enumerating and listing of all of those, but believe me when I tell you, there were quite a few denominations within the early church. Sometimes they revolved around theological ideas. Sometimes they revolved primarily around personality. There was a bit of a cult of personality developing. There were those that followed. Paul even said to the Corinthians, he said, some say I'm of Apollos, some say I'm of Cephas, Peter, some say I'm of Paul. Really spiritual folks say I'm of Jesus. Paul was so incensed by it, Paul said, and this is a hyperbolic statement for sure, but it kind of expresses his emotion. Paul said, I think, God, I didn't baptize any of you. Because if I would have baptized, you would have said, I'm of Paul. And Paul said, you've missed the point. So there were, within the early church, not just denominations, because denominations can live. We're all, I think, examples of that. Some denominations can live wonderfully without that kind of discord. But those kinds of denominational lines of demarcation, whether it's personality or theology or geography, simply preference, those kinds of groupings then and now can divide factiously, factiously and fractiously, discordantly. Again, I'm not going to go into all the lists, but you do not have to do a careful reading of the book of Acts to see that the church was dividing with aggravation. Uh, the epistle to the Romans, that wonderful magnum opus of Paul theologically, it's built on a foundation of division. Paul is addressing division between the Gentile faction of the Christian church in Rome and the Jewish faction. Galatians, the whole premise of Galatians is a really tripartite division within the church that was grieving Paul and causing a lot of pain. Both letters to the Corinthians, all about division. Not all about, but a lot about division and the immaturity that comes with division, the immaturity that leads to division. But it doesn't have to be that way. These kinds of groupings if they do it right, they can recognize their common denominators and celebrate those common denominators first, while at the same time recognizing that, yes, we do have distinguishing characteristics. We do have distinctive ideas. And we can relegate these distinguishing characteristics and distinctive ideas, Catholic, Protestant, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Assembly of God, Church of God, Church of Christ, Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, Presbyterian Church USA, Presbyterian Church of America, ad infinitum or nauseum, depending on how you see it. 
we can relegate these distinguishing characteristics that are sociologically driven, tribally driven, and, and I think driven by conviction. We can, we can relegate them to important, but a category of importance that does not demand full separation. Paul spoke to what I call our distinctives allowing unity. That's a mouthful. And distinctives allowing, that's a hyphenated word that I've kind of put together. Distinctives allowing unity. A unity that allows distinctives. A unity that allows us to have distinctives even on matters of conviction. We try to say those matters aren't primary, they're secondary or tertiary, but sometimes they feel pretty primary. Listen to Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, just a couple of verses there. And this is one of the books where he really did speak to that matter of division and the painful process of division that they had gone through. But in 1 Corinthians 12, he idealizes this idea of distinctives allowing unity. And he says, for just as the body is one. And think about this not just as a local church, but in the macro, the worldwide church. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And now he goes into what could be teased out and shown to be really some of the rudimentary elements of what was creating division or distinctives, denominations within their day. We're all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slave, free. But remember, we all of us, with our popes and patriarchs, preachers and priests, with our sprinklings and immersions, we are all drinking of one spirit. We may prepare the meal a little differently. Our spice cabinet may be distinct from one another's but we're drinking of one spirit. As people visit our church, as people come, they always, almost always, inquire as to the distinctives of our church. Now, they may not do that verbally. They may do it online. There are lots of you that figure it out. The first thing you did, you went online and you found the leadership and you found my page and you looked to see who I read. Smart. If you want to uh, really find out what somebody believes, don't read what they write. Read who they read. You'll find out a lot about them. Um, others of you, uh, gone back. We have one young lady told us last week she's going back through the last six months of podcast at this church. That's a pretty dutiful deal. Can you imagine? Some of you can barely get through one sermon. This lady's going back as a matter of conscience, and listen to the six months of sermons, trying to figure out who we are. And so, as people come, I think it's normal, it's expected by me, and I think it's responsively good that they would ask, tell me a little bit about Grace Point. Tell me something about Grace Point. What's its background? Some people say, is it a denomination? Um, others say, what's your vision? Tell us about the vision and the mission of Grace Point. Uh, what kind of church is this, people say. 
So I want to start this series that's going to last through August and into September, maybe on through September. I want to start this series by sharing with you my answers to those kinds of questions. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to just act like I'm out on the patio because that's my office out there. And I'm going to share my answers as though you were an individual because a group is just a bunch of individuals and a lot of you have already asked me these things. I'm just going to try to pull it together and respond as though you were seeking to possibly visit our church or join our church and you wanted to know a little bit more about it because that's where a lot of you are. And I think for those that have been around here a long while, I think you might deserve a refresh and a reboot yourself. So you act like you're that person and I'll act like I'm sitting out there on the patio with you. And as I walk through this friendly interrogative, that's what it's going to be. Y'all are going to be friendly, okay? This is not an investigation. It's a friendly interrogative. You be thinking, because they really could shape not only this message, but they could shape the weeks to come. You be thinking of the questions that you may have and maybe even the questions that arise in response to my responses. So somebody says, what kind of church is Grace Point? First thing I always say, if it's no more specific than that, out on the patio. I said, well, Grace Point is an interdenominational church. That's a great word, by the way, interdenominational. Did you know that's eight syllables? And if you add an L-Y on the end of it, you've got yourself a nine-syllable word. And if you really get fancy and say, we believe in interdenominationalism, you are now at ten syllables. So if you think you don't have a functional ten-syllable word and you're still saying anti-disestablishmentarianism, which is twelve, I'm telling you, we've got a functional ten-syllable word with interdenominationalism. Anyway, that's important for some of us. Interdenominational. Probably the last 30 years, one of the three hottest trends, and hot is such a demeaning word, but at the moment I couldn't come up with a better one. One of the three hottest trends. <laughs> you ought to try sitting up here sometime, being on the spotlight. Cerebral capacity goes way down. Is interdenominationalism or non-denominationalism. Now, we don't say non-denomination. Uh, most everybody's kind of backed off on that. And I do want to tell you, almost every denomination has come from a group of people who were in a denomination, left, and were non-denominational. But after a while of fellowship and like mine, you create a denomination even if you don't want to. That's the way it works. So we all realize that, or a lot of people realize that, and say, well, we're not non-denominational, because that sounds like you're putting denominations down. And I, I don't feel that way um, about denominations. You know, there are so many negative jokes about denominations. Uh, and I, I think they're unfounded, but they are funny. You know, the little boy said, uh, I'm Methodist. What abomination are you? Um, <laughs> joke about the Baptist church that kind of went the way of a lot of denominational churches and took that adjective off and called themselves Christian Life Center, right? You know, all the churches are going away from Nazarene Baptist Christian Life Center. And the old deacon was so torn up about it, he said, to the pastor, we have, been Christ we have been Baptists way too long to start being Christian now. Um, 
And so there's all those bad jokes. Or the old, the old uh, fellow at the church in Pine Bluff that was talking to Pastor Rutledge and I, and he said, I heard a new religion the other day. And Brother Rutledge said, well, what is it? And he said, well, he said, I can't put my finger on it, but he said, it starts with a P. Now, we were Pentecostal. He said, it starts with a P. Um, Brother Rutledge, pastor there, who was one of my mentors, said, uh, Presbyterian? He said, no, no, I've heard Presbyterian. I said, Puritan? He said, no. Oh, he said it's on the... Episcopal. Episcopal. <laughs> we are not non-denominational. Interdenominational denotes our respect for the tradition of the church. And the tradition of the church is that, yes, we have separated, but not always divisively. And you can look back at the negative side of separation, and it's there. But I can tell you, most denominations that I know of historically arose out of a group of people who were ardently seeking after God. And a lot of times, if you look back in church history, the church was experiencing a particular deficit that's obvious in retrospect, but in the moment was not obvious and that deficit often creates a hunger that leads to a group of people breaking away over that issue. The danger is when they break away over that issue, even if it's a legitimate issue, even if the church needed reformed on that, they take that spark off the grinding wheel of God and that spark removed from the hole often becomes a cold piece of metal that you build walls around. So there's a danger there, but generally it's these things are motivated, these movements are motivated, whether it's the Restoration Movement, Campbell and Barton Stone, whether it's the Pentecostal Movement. When the movement that I come from started at the beginning of the 20th century. We were on the other side of the tracks and considered anathema and reprobate. And now our disposition has influenced and as much as a third to a half of the Christian church would clearly say that their theology is impacted by the Pentecostal Nazarene holiness movement. These little branches break off of the main river of the church, and you really can't tell in the first years and decades if they're heretical or positive reform. It generally takes time to look back and to see. Was that, you know, because sometimes these little tributaries break off, and within decades, you know, they kind of dwindle, and the river of the church can handle it, and they always backwash into the river, and the river's just fine. Sometimes these little tributaries break off. And they foment, and they grow, and they end up direct, redirecting the whole river. Time tells. So we're interdenominational, and we have a respect. Uh, Pastor Mel, curating our service, tries very much to blend uh, theologically the stylings and the trappings of evangelical streams, charismatic streams, even liturgical streams. We try to blend those things as opposed to being one more group that comes along recalcitrantly and says, we're right, everybody else is wrong, and we're going to mature worship and do it this way. No, we're trying to converge a lot of beauty that has existed in the church. So I always say that, you know, we're not in, the, in a denomination, but we're very respectful. And we don't bring a bunch of people from different denominations together. What seems to be happening in the body of Christ 
is the walls of separation were too large and thick for us and we're kind of coalescing in places like this and instead of just tolerating one another we're actually learning from and appreciating one another and we're coming back from these different places and realizing that wasn't apostasy over there that was a bunch of good people focusing on some things that we weren't focusing on so there's a lot to learn there second thing that I always say is we are theologically speaking progressive in nature and lack of a better term I, I like the word progressive um, but you know progressive has been used in so many different ways that I always have to give the immediate disclaimer not in the political sense necessarily that's not our purview here at this church although I encourage every person in this church to be a citizen of the kingdom they're in and to be very involved personally and politically and I believe that I am but that's not my purview that's not my base it's not this church's base and we have some we have a lot of really good people in this church who are very politically uh, conservative and we have other people in this church who are very politically liberal left of center and we try to tolerate one another and hopefully we can mature to the point that we don't have to keep living out that cliche of those there are just a couple of things we don't talk about politics and religion wow really I, I long that we could be better than that but so when I say we're progressive if you head down the political trail um, you've missed the point our purview here is theology spirituality religion and when I say that we're progressive in nature theologically I always say, I always remind people that by progressive our, our sense is progressive means that something is happening or developing gradually over a period of time that there is this sense of growth and development that cannot be contained and quarantined by one era or one space but just as botany and biology and economics and philosophy and every other discipline of the known world is advancing not as new realities are born but as old realities are unveiled and better understood that's what we mean by progress we have a sense theological progressives have a sense that truth whether that's in scripture in tradition in nature we don't have a sense that the 17th century created all the elements of the elemental chart though it did give us the elemental chart what we have a sense of is those elements existed forever but we finally had the lenses by which to see and discern them and theological progressives say that truth whether it's held in scripture incarnately intuitively truth is a time release capsule and it releases and unfolds its good spiritual medicine as the body has the capacity to metabolize it I'll say that again it's a time release capsule truth is that unveils its beauty little by little as the body has the capacity to metabolize it that's the way we feel progressives believe that there should always be new ideas new findings unveiled and unveiling realities 
Eugene Peterson, who gave us the message and a wonderful Presbyterian theologian, Eugene Peterson said one of the great deficits in the 20th century Christian church, a la the Protestant resulting church that has been so careful to get our theology so exact and so codified, Peterson said one of the great deficits for us is the gift and the virtue of imagination within the bounds of theology. He said we lack so much imagination. But imagination has always been the nature of the heart, the disposition of those to whom God unfolds truth. That's why back when the Spirit fell in Acts 2 and blew everybody's mind, Peter stood up and said, this is what Joel was talking about 800 years ago. Old men are going to dream dreams and young men and women are going to see visions and prophesy of things unknown. Good theology is imaginative. Good theology is hopeful. And and we don't, when I'm sitting there on the patio with you guys, I always say, but listen, and and I am not trying to be one of the ten in the debate the other night covering all sides. I really... I really don't feel a need to cover all sides. I love the fact that the body of Christ is robust and large and there are plenty of places to go for plenty of people. And I really believe more than ever in the idea of common vision. And I want us to be clear who we generally are so we can do a good work together. And let all those people out there who are looking for us know that we're here. Because I honestly think, and probably everybody thinks this about their church, but I love this place so much. I think it's a needle in a haystack. And I think a lot of people, if they knew we existed, would love us. And we need to get more evangelistic in our efforts to invite people that we think would be benefited by this place. We don't need to keep it all for ourselves. But not trying to cover all sides, but I always tell people that progressive is not the other end of the theological spectrum from traditional. I mean, there's not this theological spectrum, and you got the traditionalists down on that end and the progressives on that end. No, I I don't believe that at all. Um, Tradition, the valuing of inherited ideas, established customary patterns. Man, if that's the truth, I'm very traditional. I love... Perpetuity, not just forward but backwards. I love connection. I I love the fact that the folk who invented the wheel may not have invented the car, but our capacity to invent the car was dependent upon those who invented the carriage. And no one generation really should ever stand with their hands on their hips or their thumbs in their lapel, look back and say, how ignorant has everyone been? Because we really are benefited by an accumulating wisdom. And, and I love the tradition of the, of the Christian church. And as a matter of fact, what we inherited, talk about our tradition, what we inherited spiritually, what we inherited spiritually, our tradition, in other words, is at its heart progressive in nature. Our tradition, and again, I promise you, I'm not trying to be a politician to keep both sides because you can't do it. It doesn't work. I'm telling you the truth from my perspective. Our tradition as a Christian church is progressive in nature. We have not gotten progressive. We were progressive, and that's what birthed us in the first place. 
Jesus was an incredible, I almost said radical, and maybe that's true, but Jesus was an incredible progressive. You remember he bumped up against, and maybe I should distinguish because there's this old saying that tradition is the living ideas of dead people. That's good stuff. Tradition is the living. We don't have to reinvent E equals MC squared. Tradition, an inherited idea, Einsteinian idea, it is the living, still working, Newtonian ideas, these still working ideas of dead people. That's good tradition. Traditionalism is the dead ideas of living people. Did you get that? So tradition is the living ideas of dead people. Good stuff. Traditionalism are the dead ideas of living people. That's when we're stuck with things that make no sense, but we just have to because mom and daddy gave it to us. And that's right, right? Jesus was forever bumping up, not against tradition. Jesus was deeply traditional. But Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, and he was speaking to their interpretation of the rabbinic interpretation of Moses' text, the Mosaic text. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said that Moses said, and then Jesus said, but I say unto you. And the traditionalism folks came and said, you're trying to destroy Moses. It got Jesus in a lot of trouble, didn't it? Jesus said, not only am I not trying to destroy Moses, I'm actually trying to fulfill him. I'm trying to save him. Without casting any aspersion on what you've done, Jesus believed in an unfolding tradition. And Jesus says the unfolding nature of this scriptural medicine does not cast aspersion on how it first was released, but it simply says there is more here. I'm not trying to destroy Moses. I'm trying to save Moses. Jesus was traditionally a radical progressive because progressiveness was the nature of the Jewish faith, this always unfolding truth. Paul, same thing. So for me, when I say that we're a progressive church, one of the hallmarks of the Jewish Christian way of being in the world religiously, one of the hallmarks of our way of being in the world is the idea of an unfolded and unfolding revelation, that it's forever unfolding to us. Wouldn't it be odd that every discipline, every structure of our world is growing in knowledge, but religiously every thought that we should ever have was settled 2,000 years ago? That's odd. That in every other area we're explorative, imaginative, seeking, but somehow, orthodoxy means that 2,000 years ago, they got it all right. And that may be comforting to some people, but Christianity's present struggle in the West, I don't think is due the badness of people. I think it's due this very struggle that people have of feeling like, for them, Christianity has meant to come into a worship service, we have to check our brain at the door. And shut off all questions and all thought. That's a bothersome conclusion for a lot of people who are not averse to spirituality, even Christian spirituality. 
but they're struggling, struggling with this idea of Christian fixedness and orthodoxy that 2,000 years ago we got it all square. And, and the reality is there's nothing about the Christian church that indicates that. Our history is a history of continual struggle and unfolding. Every denomination is an effort to say, hey folks, we think we are getting it a little better here. Now, admittedly, many denominations think they are getting it better because they are returning us 900, 1,970 years to the way the early church did it. Let me tell you something else about progressive Christianity, and I think this is built into the text itself. Progressive Christianity does not effort to restore 2,000-year-old Christianity. Progressive Christianity does not see the early church as the archetype. It sees it as the infant. That's a big statement right there. Progressive Christianity does not feel that we are duty-bound to go back and recover what the early church did 2,000 years ago. And I think Scripture sets up nicely to indicate that we shouldn't be doing that because the New Testament text did us a favor by showing that that was a very infantile church that had lots of struggles and they didn't even act like they were getting it right. As a matter of fact, the bulk of the material was written was written in response to how bad they were getting it wrong. So this idea that it's almost become an idol in the Christian church, that somehow 2,000 years ago everything was settled, I don't see the early and progressive Christianity, which is burgeoning and growing. It's not just burgeoning and growing in terms of churches. But folks, I literally spend a day or two a week fielding calls and sitting down from pastors all around America. Monday, two pastors from New York City were here. The week before, a pastor from a large church in Rockford, Illinois. A pastor from L.A. called me two days ago. People, pastors all around of strict conservative evangelical churches are calling me under the cover of night saying, me too. And that is true of the congregations. But we have structures and financial limitations and sociological pressure that keeps us all between the pulpit and the pew very quiet. But we're thinking these things because the Spirit of God, that's the way it works. It bubbles up kind of organically all over and then it foments into a movement and the movement generally gets a few people's heads cut off. I really don't want to be that person. I'm not built for that kind of thing. I, but so be it. Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. And there are some things worth getting your head cut off for. And the Christian church is thinking better thoughts about God. The Christian church is thinking better thoughts about itself. It always has been. Now, I'm the, I'm the opposite of the fellow that came to Horace Greeley, the great publicist magazine guy in the late 19th century. You know, a lot of people so idealize the past that just romantically, Victorian-wise, for them, the past is always the better thing. And a guy walked up to Greeley one day. Greeley had a brilliant response. But the guy walks up to him and says, Greeley, your magazine's not as good as it used to be. Greeley smiled and said, it never has been. And that's, just, that's the way some people fantasize an idea. The good old days. You know what the good old days are? When you were a kid, Right? And I listen to myself talking to my kids, and it just about, I just want to, 
I throw up in my mouth as I listen to myself. I'm like, well, I'll tell you when I was a kid. And I'm thinking, oh, my lands, that's what my dad said to him and his mom said, right? That cartoon I talk about sometime where Charlie Brown was writing the paper on church history. Lucy says, what are you writing there? And he said, a, a paper on church history. And she said, really? How far back are you going? He said, to the beginning. She said, well, let me hear it. He pulled out, out from the typewriter and he said, our pastor, Brother Johnson, was born in 1932. <laughs> That's people's ideas. Of, I don't have that idea that the past has always been better. Some people draw the, the XY graph, I'm backwards to you guys, the XY graph, and they say that the story of the universe is it started out perfectly and it's going, been going downhill like a snowball headed to hell forever, and at the worst, it's going to take an interruptive act cataclysmically and the kingdom will be built. That's plausible. And it's interpretable. People who see that see two steps forward, three steps backward. I don't. I think it's the exact opposite. I think 13.7 billion years ago, God, in an incredible magnanimous act of sharing that was also good for God, God created what Martin Buber, the Jewish theologian, called God created a withdrawal. God decided to not be everything, and God created other than God's self. And science seems to say that was a long time ago. I'm not taking youth groups to Kentucky anymore to prove that the world's 6,000 years old. I don't think it's 6,000 years old. I don't think that's the point. I think it's way older. The universe is way older, and it was the gift of God, and that God created out of the only material God could, which was God, and so all of the universe is infused with the image of God, and I believe that irrepressible image of God has been growing up, Genesis 1 said, out of the dust of the earth. Irrepressibly, irrevocably, it has been growing up until finally human beings stand here in our little space of the universe. And who knows that we're the best and fullest expression. But it's a pretty wonderful expression. Hundreds of people getting together and casting their eyes upward and otherward. And sensing that life is a gift to be mutually held and graciously, gratefully received and shared. That's lovely. And I, I know... And I can make a case for the two steps backward in human history. My God, 20th century, we were as advanced as any century had been technologically, industrially, with the arts, with academics. And our number one per capita educated country in the world created the Holocaust. So I get the two steps backward deal. I read the paper. But gee whiz, I see the three steps forward. And when I look at Scripture... I don't see Scripture as a two steps forward, three steps backward story. I see it as a net effect toward the kingdom. And I, I don't know how that kingdom's going to come where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more child molestation, no more pediatric burn units, no more ISIL. I don't know how the kingdom's going to come. And sometime I long for that cataclysmic interruption that I grew up with in dispensationalism, you know, where the Lord comes and so I long for that. And I think if it's gradual, my God, how long is that going to take? Our sun's going to burn out. We're going to have to finish this somewhere else. And then I think as a species, we're only about phew, Homo sapiens sapiens, 20 to 60,000 years old. What species are we even going to be? 
Hey, did you thought about that? <laughs> Progressives think about that kind of stuff. And the mysterious nature that used to drive us nuts because it seemed to be the opposite of the thing we longed for the most, which was certainty, which gave us control, which dispelled our fears, kind of. Mystery that used to drive us nuts, now we kind of roll over like it's a riptide. And we don't even ride it out trying to get back to shore. We think this riptide may be taking us to an exotic island somewhere. For truth is bigger and more beautiful and Jesus plays larger than we could have ever imagined. This is the way I talk out on the patio, so I might as well talk to y'all this way, right? You get it individually, let's get it corporately. Progressives have an interpretive lens of progress. Progressives, we always said it was traditionalism raises you in a denomination. And I want to tell you the way denominations play a lot of time. You live on the top of the mountain of revelation, God's disclosure. God came to our little group, Church of God out of Anderson, Church of God out of Malden, Missouri, Church of God out of Cleveland, Church of God of Prophecy across the street from the Church of God in Cleveland, or Assembly of God. God came to our group, right? Free Will Baptist, Missionary Baptist, General Baptist, Hardshell Baptist, Primitive Baptist, Southern Baptist, American Baptist, National Alliance Baptist, Cooperative Baptist. God came to our group. And we are at the top of the mountain of Revelation, and we got our flag stuck there. And we're looking around from the top of the mountain. Some of us don't believe anybody else is even on the mountain. Some of us are gracious, and we see the hoi polloi denominations down below us a little ways, and we're very satisfied that we're at least at the top, right? And then life does you a favor. The progressive, unveiling, magnanimous heart of God allows a sovereign breeze to come through one day. And it's not one day, it, it's months, it's years. And the clouds that you, were, you thought were the ceiling of the universe above you at the top of the mountain, those clouds dissipate and you look up and you realize not only are you not on the top of the mountain, but the mountain goes so far up, you can't even begin to see the top of it. And you look around at what you thought was the top of the mountain, and you're just an outcropping on the side of the mountain about 300 feet up. And you look around at all the other folk with their flags in the crown. And it so discombobulates you, if you're like me, you fall all the way down to the bottom of the mountain. And I'll tell you what I did at the bottom of the mountain when I realized I still, I had lost my position on the side of the mountain and I saw all of the others and it was incredibly confusing, but I still had a sense that you got to get to the top of the mountain. Eternal consequence and destiny depends on it. Driven by fear and a need for certainty, I started trying to hire every religious guru and Sherpa that had shops at the base of the mountain telling me they could get me to the top of the mountain. You know how many people have written that book, started that denomination, and pastored that church? And they just gather up all the people at the bottom of the mountain and say, if you come to us, we'll get you to the top of the mountain. We know the private route. And you try out all of those Sherpas. You try on another religion. 
You quit praying and you start meditating. You do all of that and you finally realize that none of those Sherpas can get you a whole lot farther than where you were. And I'll tell you what you do. You either go crazy, move back to your place on the side of the mountain and pretend delusionally like it's the top or you build a humble cottage at the base of the mountain. And every morning you come out and you look at that mountain and the mystery of it all causes you to worship with unveiled heart. And you still mountain climb because it's invigorating. But at the end of everyday mountain climbing, you don't stake a claim. You come humbly back down that mountain and you live in your humble cottage with God. And you look out at night at the stars above that mountain and you say, well, of course. As high as the heavens are above the earth. <laughs> Progressives don't lack ideas. I'm more enthused about Jesus than I've ever been. Progressives don't lack conviction. But our convictions shift from certainty to mystery. And we begin to have this sneaking suspicion that the ark of God's mercy is going to cut a far wider swath than we ever supposed before. That the heart of God, you begin to, you begin to read the text differently and you realize, you know, Jesus never one time said, I love you, but all the time he said, please don't be afraid of me. And you say, so if Jesus was God, what was God trying to say to us? You say, are you saying God doesn't love us? No, no, no. He's meeting us where we are. And he looked and said, what do I really need to say to him? I don't need to tell him I love him. I can't tell him I love him. They'll never believe me. They have such a history of being afraid of the gods. Before I can ever tell him I love him, I need to tell them something really important. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. And then, if you're not afraid and you get close enough, you'll start hearing, because I love you. Always have. Crazy about you. People say, well, what about that scripture in Job? Yes, it's in Job. That says, the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. I get that. It's the beginning. Does beginning sound like fruition? Does beginning sound like consummation? Does beginning sound like the whole story? See, back to that idea of infant versus archetype. The fear of the Lord is where we began. And from Job's perspective, I mean, all Job heard God say, the consciousness, what could be yielded about God at that time was I'm big, you're small, hush up, you don't deserve to ask questions. And Job, through all of that, put his hand on his mouth, but the one thing that really bled through was when Job said, okay, I'll shut up, but I just want to say, oh, that God were a man and knew what all this really feels like. And God looks at the angels and said, boy, this kid's precocious. That's why he gets a book in the Bible. Because that's quite an idea, God becoming a man. And in Jesus, you never one time hear, who do you think you are? Shut your mouth. You have no right for questions. In Jesus, 
Mary falls at his feet and says, where were you when my brother died? And instead of excoriating her in Job-like form and saying, did you make the hippopotamus? Were you there when Orion was flung in the sky? No, he looks at her and she doesn't get the Job answer because God's not changing, but unveiled little by little. The veil, the tent is getting less. And he picks her up and says, where is he? And they go out to the tomb and no heady theology is displayed, explicated, but it is displayed actually because the Bible said all Jesus did was weep and the tears of God splash on the ground mingled with the tears of man. And our dubious, doubtful sense of fear toward God dissipates more. And by the time the old man John gets to the end of his story, he says love, when it is fully complete and mature, will cast out all fear. All fear? Even the fear of God. Because all means all. And the next book is supposed to be the scariest book in the Bible, or two books later, the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation with all the seven-headed monsters and you know, flying wasp and antichrist. John said, I saw all of that and I felt the same way that Stan Mitchell felt when he was a kid and that prophecy preacher put all that stuff up on the chart. John said, I fell down dead and Jesus walked through the midst of all that scary stuff, walked over to me and I was laying there on the ground and Jesus said, I want to tell you one thing, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So, think about the questions that this provokes. Because conversation in Scripture for the progressive is not a constitutional end, it's an invitational beginning. And mystery is not that which is unknowable, mystery is that which is infinitely knowable, and every time a microscope or a telescope yields a new piece of evidence, that is indeed an answer, but that answer yields three new questions. And that's why Paul said we move from glory to glory with God because it's ever unfolding. And the beauty is God didn't change God's mind on women in ministry in the 20th century. God didn't change God's mind on slavery between the 14th and 19th century. But Jesus said to the earliest disciples, I have a lot of things I'd like to tell you, but you are simply not capable of receiving them. But as the Holy Spirit comes and abides with you, as human consciousness grows, we have the capacity on this first anniversary of Ferguson to sit around with tears and open hearts and say, what does this mean? To consider a life like Michael Brown's and to try to find what part of that I bring to the table, what part of the three steps forward, what part of the two steps backward am I? To look at the holy text of Scripture, not simply as a book of history with facts, but to hear Jesus say it's the truth that sets you free, and to read it not as a historical narrative first, but to read it first as the narrative of my own soul. So I would ask you to do me a favor this week and send to me to our elders, to our staff, 
questions provoked by this conversation. And we will, over the next few weeks, explore who is this church called Grace Point? What kind of church are we? And if we were the only ones thinking these thoughts, I'd shut it down in a heartbeat because I don't believe in myself way nearly that much. But this is bubbling up everywhere. It's the reason we've got a pope like we have right now because it's bubbling up everywhere. It is the irrepressible image of God. We are thinking better thoughts of God. And the great hope of imagination is we have yet to think as good of thoughts as actually can be and should be thought about God. But what a joyous, grace-filled journey. Can you say amen? Amen.